This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Saskia Warren about British Muslim women in the cultural and creative industries. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. Um, This is a fantastic book. Uh, I think it's a really important book. It's also, um, and this is a kind of slightly... Uh, odd thing to say about an academic book, but it's an incredibly like readable book full of these kind of fascinating uh, case studies of individual um, lives, individual creative practitioners' lives. And it's a book that's full of uh, some quite big ideas as well. And, and probably the, the kind of place to start with the book is one of the big ideas that um, the book is, I suppose, trying to address or, or trying to fill a gap in, which is the way that religion and faith um, seem to be kind of missing from creative industries work and maybe a bit missing from um, equality, diversity and inclusion work as well. Um, and I guess my, my question is kind of what you hope in the book is, is going to do and why have you written the book in the context of that uh, kind of gap in the literature? Yeah, thank you very much. So the impetus for the book really was a tension as I saw it. For those that have been in the known have observed the growing Islamic creative industries, there's a real boosterous narrative around it, you know, that it's worth 3.7 trillion by Thompson Reuters. There's also discussion around a growing Muslim youth and middle class population. But on the other hand, we see that there's reports that focus on missing Muslims from economic and public life, and especially Muslim women. So I observed this dissonance and putting this together with EDI work and also work around culture and creative industries, I found that religion and faith are really overlooked as indexes of inequality in public life in cultural policy and creativity. And the issue with that is it means that we don't have the knowledge practices to understand the complexity and nuances of religion and faith. So gender and class are preferred indexes, and that means that there's research around gender and class and therefore data to argue with. And yet we know that Islamophobia is growing. So Wolf Institute report of 2020 said that intolerance towards religion was stronger than that towards nationality and ethnicity. So I really wanted to address that gap and to understand a bit more 
about how religion acted together with gender and the roles of women in this huge exponential growth of the global Islamic creative industries. I think what one of the key points you've made there is this sense that um, many of the kind of core bits of the creative, creative industries get reframed when we get, um, you know, kind of general data or, you know, kind of specific um, ways of capturing the experiences um, of Muslim women. And, and later on, we'll talk about things like art schools, the fashion industry, um, you know, being a, a kind of blogger, lifestyle media, um, influencers, stuff like that. But one of, the, one of the ways, I think, really straightforwardly and straight away, the book um, challenges the, the existing narratives and, and, and really kind of gives us um, an important platform for doing more in-depth and detailed work is the sense of understanding the history of Muslim women and their work in Britain, and particularly in the context um, of the creative industries. And I wonder if you could kind of maybe sketch a little bit of context. It, it's tricky, isn't it? Because, you know, there's a couple of chapters at the start of the book that, that do this. But could you give us a sort of flavour of that kind of history and, and how it sets the uh, circumstances for thinking about creative industries and British Muslim women? Yeah, thank you. So extant histories of Muslims in Britain have tended to follow the story of mass migration from World War II onwards. Um, and particularly focused on immigration from Commonwealth, with real focus on the male migrant as the primary economic subject. However, the history of Muslims in Britain is longer. And of course, Muslim women have engaged in paid labour in Britain too over time. So there's some evidence of Muslim women entering the paid labour market in Britain as ayahs or nannies from the early 18th century. And these were linked to those who worked for the East Indian Company. And some of those people working for East Indian Company returned with their families to live in Britain, bringing their paid nannies with them. There's also evidence of women, some of whom would have been Muslim, who had migrated from India and entered semi-skilled and unskilled production in factories from the post-war period. And then from 1970s, later migrations of Pakistani women who engaged in flexible specialisation. And so there was an increase in kind of low status, part-time work, and importantly, work that could be done at home. So domestic working, such as piecework and sewing. And so really, we do need to understand the kinds of work done and the places the work is undertaken is both gendered and racialized. And also importantly, opportunities in work would be found through networking, through word of mouth. And there is a significance of region and locality in that work too. And then later we see a kind of opening up and a diversification of places that people would come from in order to seek economic opportunities, but also perhaps study and create a better life in Britain. So in the, later in the 20th century, we see women and men arriving and working in Britain from places such as Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Egypt, Jordan, Iran, and so on. I think what's really important to emphasise is that the story of British Muslims in work in the late 20th century and early 21st century 
follows the trajectory of women in work generally. So more women enter the workplace and attitudes to gender and work change over the past 30 years or so. But even though there is that broad way in which the trajectory mirrors one another and there are certainly changing attitudes towards gender and work amongst Muslim females, it is still the case that those that are aged between 60 and 24 are only half as likely to be in paid labour. What I should say here, and it's really important to have this kind of nuance and understanding, is the inclusion and exclusion labour market does really need to be understood in context. So there's still variation in employment outcomes. And important work by Kitab and Madhub has really emphasised this, and I pick up on it in my book to discuss some of the complexity and intersections around inclusion and exclusion. So those with lighter skin, qualifications and fluency in English language have similar outcomes to the national average of women in work. Also, there is another important thing that we should recognise, and that is the official data on paid labour and occupations only tells part of the story. So there will be so many Muslim women who are working and are generating economic outcomes, but where that work isn't picked up and recorded. And that's because some of the work might be hidden in the home. So it might be part of a a kind of grey economy, but also it might be women that are supporting family businesses, um, but they're not recorded as the business owners. And it also might be in other ways that has economic returns, such as caring duties, they're absolutely essential for functioning of families. If that's the sort of macro picture, and and I think you've you've given a really great backdrop, how does this play out with specific reference to the creative industries then? And and things you've you've just mentioned around, you know, the problem of kind of is work paid or, or unpaid? You know, we know that's one of the kind of issues for creative industry statistics, but but also one of the issues for thinking about um, creative industries, kind of work quality. And then also some of the things you, you'd mentioned about the kinds of work that British, British Muslim women have been doing. You know, there are obvious crossovers with things like the fashion industry, but at the same time, there are issues about geography, economic returns, exploitation, working practices in things like fashion too. So what are the kind of implications for that big story in terms of creative industries? Yeah, so... The empirical work for this book was mostly undertaken in Greater Manchester. And Greater Manchester was selected in part because it's where I lived at the time, is where I work at University of Manchester. Um, And so I'd got to know people in that city and knew the history of the city. But also it's an important case study because of historical relationships to empire. Manchester was an industrial city, And there's still post-colonial legacies in that city today, I argue, that structure the kinds of works people do and the opportunities they have. So overlaid with that, we see gender difference because not all, but for those that it's relevant to, might be juggling families and caring alongside work. Therefore, working in 
something like textiles where garments can be sewn at home is an easy option or an easier option than trying to go to a workplace outside of the home. So it can be the least worst option, but it's certainly not a utopian situation, a kind of juggling of domestic and work demands. So implications around that are around pay and also protection of rights. And so in the book, I trace three different sectors and I've already intimated what the first sector is. So the first sector is looking at textiles and garment working, but with a focus on modest fashion. I also look at the visual arts in the book. Again, something that people might be able to do at home, but for the majority of artists, you're not going to have the same success as the YBAs. For many, it's a struggle financially. And then the third area is digital media. And so that's the growth, huge growth of things such as blogging, YouTube channels, um, use of Instagram, Twitter, so the sort of micro social media blogging sites in order to build a platform and influence. Again, this is something that can be done domestically, but it also means there's not a clear divide between work and home with all the kinds of issues around intimacy, exploitation and potential violence that can ensue from that blurring of boundaries. I mean, maybe we'll sort of do those three in turn, but actually it's it's worth stressing that three are are really interrelated. You know, it's clear that you can't really understand the success um, and and struggles of um, your participants working in the fashion industry without understanding lifestyle media and the kind of the rise of digital modes um, of kind of selling almost the fashion world and and the fashion industry and equally understanding visual uh, arts work is impossible without understanding um, digital technologies, digital techniques. So all three are definitely interrelated, but maybe, maybe we'll start actually with with visual arts because that's, I I think quite a nice illustration of some of the um, real sort of possibilities um, for your participants to get, you know, kind of great sort of successes in terms of both their creative practice and their working lives. But also it's a story of various structural inequalities that, you know, that really kind of um, hinder them and, and some formal barriers, some um, kind of, you know, more hidden and, and sort of insidious. So maybe I'll, I'll throw two questions at you about visual arts. The first thing is how do your participants kind of get in to the visual arts world like how does the role of art school function you know what what kind of things that do they have to kind of negotiate to make it in to the visual arts world and then what kind of artistic practice are they doing um when when they end up as artists yeah thank you Uh, so those questions are great and they're interlinked as you say they're also big questions so i'll do my best to answer and you can bring me back on track if i'm going off but First of all, so how do participants enter art school and how do they select it? And this is really interesting. I, well, I think so. It links to a bigger debate actually around uh, is art and is something like pursuing art a good career? Is it seen as a good career? And this is important because the book traces a longer trajectory of careers than simply looking 
at the subsectors people are working on. Instead, I take more of a life course approach where I've explored experience of education and how that's led to particular lines of working and then how people might leave work for periods of time and come back to it. So taking a much fuller approach to understanding working lives. And for many of the participants, pursuing art and becoming an artist was not seen as good work by their parents or by their communities. And I use the word communities because many participants use the word community. So instead, they pointed towards good work as being seen as work which was well remunerated and work that had clear pathways and where the work was seen as stable. And pursuing art and becoming an artist was regarded as the antithesis of good work in that regard. So, for instance, one of my participants said that she avoided using the word artist to her mother because her mother would, quote, unquote, lose her mind if she thought her daughter was becoming an artist. So instead, she preferred the word illustrator because that denoted a particular practice that had a clearer professional purpose which she felt the mother could just about handle. And I, I pushed her on, you know, why is it that an artist would have this baggage as a, as a term? And what's, what's the issue with that? And she said, well, in my community, it's seen as having no future. Um, it's not seen as successful. It would be seen as being lost. So there's barriers to pursuing something like art in the first place. It was seen as beyond a horizon of possibility for many of my participants. That said, there are some who had families that were very supportive and encouraging. And in those cases, it tended to be that they had parents or grandparents that had particular interests, perhaps in their spare time recreationally, around creativity. And so some of the participants considered their families to be atypical in giving them support, but the norms discussed was around a lack of certainty and unfamiliarity and a cautiousness about their children pursuing work as an artist. When they did... Oh, sorry. Sorry to to cut across you, because that's quite a sort of almost, you know, usual thing, you know, lots of... Um, families and communities have these kind of concerns about, you know, is it a stable job? Is it a good job? What's what's going to happen? Um, what what are some of the the other, I guess, kind of dynamics you were picking up, um, both in terms of things like the art institutions, the art world, but also, and this comes much much later in the book, actually, the sense of kind of being given a burden of sort of representing an entire community. Yeah, and so specific things that were picked up as pressure points or points of concern was around mobilities. So parents being concerned that to attend the best art schools, which were almost always viewed as being in London, would mean that their children would not be living at home uh, before marriage, which was a concern in some families. 
but not in all families. So issues around mobilities and constraints geographically. Uh, other issues that were particular, because some of these might be explained more by migration histories, by being first or second generation migrants. And But with other issues, it was specifically orientated around Islamic principles, such as around life drawing. So there were pressure points about whether the participants would undertake a figurative approach to the human body, which is seen by many in Islam, but not all, as not compatible with Islamic principles because of a concern around the depiction of the human form. But what I should emphasise here is that some students negotiated this concern in the first case by talking to tutors and there was flexibility institutionally where they wouldn't need to undertake life drawing, but also negotiated it by their own knowledge of the history of art history. And so looked at, for instance, Persian miniatures that would depict the human body, including indeed some that depict Muhammad, and would say, well, actually, there's always been greater complexity in the history of art and craft. And so it isn't necessarily the case that I can't draw or depict a human body. So some would educate themselves about art history and would interpret teachings accordingly, and then others would enter a negotiation with their institution. And that just gives some examples. Others are around positioning oneself once in institutions. So for some, they felt that there was a pressure to conform to expectations around being an Islamic artist and, quote-unquote, being an authentic Muslim. And this was pressure often given to them by predominantly white tutors who would say you need to put more of yourself into your work and guided them towards certain mediums such as textiles or patterns such as geometric art that might be associated with the Islamic world. And in these instances, uh, they felt that there was greater creative constraints placed on them as Muslim women by these predominantly white tutors than there was by the mostly white wider cohort students and what we should remember here is that creative arts and design is atypically white as a discipline of all all the unit of assessments creative arts and design has the most white students enrolled on it so for these mostly non-white Muslim students, they felt that they were being treated differently to other students who didn't have the same constraints and expectations placed upon them. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. 
Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. In terms of yeah, sorry. <laughs> well, no, no. Like, I mean, one of the things with the book is there's so much stuff in it, um, and there's kind of so many things we, we could talk about. Um, and I think one of the things you, you'd mentioned around the kind of the geography and, and the sort of the worry about particularly, you know, having to go to London to, to be a success really um, chimes in terms of similarities with the fashion industry. But at the same time, I, I was struck um, by, I, I, I suppose, the kind of greater range of possibilities um, for British Muslim women in, in the fashion industry. You, you mentioned kind of mod, modest fashion as a new, um, I suppose, trend, but but also a you know a really serious um, bit of, of of the industry as well. Um, and I'm interested in in how, in, in some ways, the kind of the geographic constraints are almost worse in the fashion industry for people who are based in places like Manchester. But the kind of maybe economic or uh, job, and thus also kind of creative possibilities are, are a bit better too. Mm. Yeah, so for those that aren't familiar with modest fashion, I'll just introduce it. So modest fashion really simply means fashion which conceals rather than reveals. And usually it means that it's garments that would cover the arms, the legs, and sometimes when always women will cover their hair as well. It's mostly associated with the Abrahamic faiths, with the largest marketplace being around the Muslim marketplace, but also Orthodox Jewish and conservative Christian marketplaces exist too. And increasingly, we're seeing a secular marketplace. So modest fashion is being taken up more widely and is influencing the high street. It's had a huge growth since the 2000s and indeed we'll see it now in Vogue magazine and so on so it's, it's really prevalent and what I wanted to find out more about was to go back to what I mentioned at the very start understanding the everyday strivers within the modest fashion industry because there's some attention that's given to the huge success of just a small handful of people within the industry. Um, I'm thinking here of Dina Torquia, for example, or Huda Katan, who works around beauty and fashion as an influencer, Hannah Tajima, for instance, or Halima Adem. So you see the same sort of Muslim icons that receive visibility, but don't really hear about the day-to-day work that's undertaken back of house. You know, those people working in tailoring, those people that might own micro-businesses, those people that might be designers, but again, on a small scale, not working on a huge scale or in luxury. And so what I did was trace the stories in depth of Muslim women working in fashion and textiles outside London. And that was very deliberate to kind of decenter London, which, as you rightly said, particularly in fashion, is really where business is concentrated, but it's also where status is concentrated over time. And I found this real conflation of, of these ideas that London is the place 
to study fashion. It's the place to work in fashion and to have status. And therefore, if you didn't have access to London, then participants felt that they were outside of quote unquote proper fashion. And so what came through very, very clearly from the work that I did was how the geographies of inequality around the fashion industry, remembering that London's a very expensive place for many people to live. If you don't have networks or family contacts there, it's an expensive place to work. If you need to enter on perhaps a placement where you might be poorly paid or not paid at all. And so many participants just felt it was beyond possible going to London. And so working in Manchester or some of them were on the move, so some of them started in Manchester but moved to other places like Leicester, they found that there was this sort of exclusion where they were expected to do work around modest fashion or ethnic styles uh, because of who they were. And again, there's those creative controls placed on them because some wanted to, quote, unquote, cross over into the mainstream, but were seen as not being compatible with mainstream because of judgments made on how they looked. An example of this was someone called Clementine, who had done an access scheme to enter fashion college and then wanted to transfer onto the BA. And she identified as a black Muslim woman. She was from Burundi originally, raised in Belgium before settling in Manchester. At the time of going to her interview for this BA, she was heavily pregnant and she was told that the ideal student would be able to devote devote 70 hours to the work. She couldn't give 70 hours to the work, but she was also aware she picked up on what she felt to be a kind of microaggression based on who she was. And she said, you know, I don't want to raise being a black Muslim as a barrier, but it's there anyway. And she said there was expectation that what she'd do would be seen as niche and peripheral, that she'd either want to do something with an African aesthetic or a Muslim aesthetic and wouldn't be willing to do things that were based around mainstream tastes, like something that would show part of the body or lingerie. And as she said herself, that isn't necessarily the case. But more than that, more than these kind of judgments and expectations that she just wouldn't fit and her style of working isn't what they'd want in a quote-unquote proper fashion degree, she also felt that there was a geographical status of institutions that was overlaid into the judgment. And I think these are racialized too, which is basically go to the community college for that. And again, that's a quote, basically go to the community college for that. So for Clementine, her experience was that she could fit in and get by at a further education college, but was seen as an outsider and other to the preferred students within a university that offered BAs. In theory, those sorts of 
both discriminatory um, institutional practices um, and the kind of expectations that, that come um, from these racialized, gendered, um, and in, in some cases, as you've alluded to, you know, anti-Islamic expectations shouldn't exist in the digital context. And one of the, I guess, the kind of middle parts of the book is about how uh, we've seen this boom in Muslim lifestyle media um, that offers a kind of an alternative space, really, to, to discrimination um, from, from mainstream media outlets. But I was fascinated by, even in the context of the kind of possibilities offered um, by digital media um, and things like, you know, lifestyle blogging, uh, formal, um, you know, video channels and, and, and stuff like this, there are still tensions and, you know, being a, a Muslim woman influencer is not, you know, kind of free um, in of, of any of the kind of constraints um, that are being faced in the art world and in terms of the fashion world too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. So entering media, whether that's digital media or mainstream media, was seen as selling out by many family members and community members. And so this was relayed to me by participants that there was great judgment that they were going into media. And that's because of mainstream media in particular being seen to be hostile towards Muslims and the representation of Muslim womanhood being around either either being marginalised or um, subjugated around being a victim or alternatively potentially being violent. And so the perceptions were the mainstream media is hostile to Muslims and it would be selling out to engage with a hostile subsector. Um, and so because of this, some, some pushed back and felt, well, how are we going to change mainstream media if we don't work in the media and we don't represent ourselves and our own stories and subvert some of these narrow and and um, derisory representations, these prejudiced representations of Muslim womanhood. But for others, they pursued other channels of media. And so this is what I explore around the growth in digital media. And this includes what I intimated before around blogging and vlogging and microblogging, but also digital TV. And these spaces are very interesting. So something like British Muslim TV, where there are some shows that are produced by women and where the presenters are women and where the target audience is other Muslim women. And the aim of some of these kinds of shows like Sisters Hour is in order to promote and to provide a space of belonging and sharing and intra-Muslim unity. And it points towards the way in which judgment can not just be from outside Muslim communities, but that there's a plurality of different Muslim identities and ways of being within 
Islam and also those that decenter piety, so those of Muslim heritage. And yet there's a shared experience of prejudice and discrimination. And so Muslim women ought to come together and join together in a show of solidarity. And indeed, some two presenters I spoke to said, how can we present a positive face of Muslim womanhood outside of the Ummah, and that is a shared Islamic community, if we don't get along internally? So by entering into digital media, there's a political, but political at a a micro-level scale ambition in order to create and foster a space of, a positive space of belonging in order to then be able to build up a reputation that could potentially at some point cross over into the mainstream. And yet for the participants that I spoke to, there were fears around that increased visibility that would be garnered through crossing over into a mainstream media because more visibility brings more violence potentially. So more threats of violence and more critique, which many had received in their careers to date. The very end of the book um, sort of brings together some of these um, examples of of resistance really, and, and, and actually what, what you've been describing in, in terms of alternatives to, to mainstream media, I think is quite usefully seen through the lens of resistance to threats of violence and, and these uh, Islamophobic critiques. And, and I want to use that, I guess, kind of idea of resistance to, to, to wrap up, really. I mean, there, there's so much in, in the book. Um, I'm, I'm sort of given only really a, a sort of a flavour of it. But it, it struck me that um, telling these stories of resistance might be an interesting kind of future research agenda um and and i'm keen to know kind of where you go next with this book so are you going to be working on ideas like you know resistance are there more things in in terms of geography for you to do um or is this your sort of first and only book on this subject and are you going to be moving to to kind of issues and and topics that are completely uh different and unrelated I know I will be continuing to work around this area. What I was very interested in is those quieter acts of resistance that we see. So again, working and and sort of pushing back on the idea of the culture and creative industries as a space purely understood through an economic lens. Many of the women that I did research with could be understood more accurately through a cultural ecology lens where we see that the work they're doing had both civic and economic purposes to it. So many were volunteers and carers or did charity-orientated work. And so there's very interesting emergent research there around the relationship of secular principles and Islamic principles of activism that I'd like to pursue further and those sort of quieter creative acts and how that can be understood through something that is faith-based and spiritual as as particular to a religious lens 
And I'm really interested in expanding our knowledge practices to understand that better. And also, whilst this book talked about British Muslims as a statement of belonging, because many of the women wanted a statement of belonging, a number of the women rescaled their identities. So they might see themselves as international, or indeed they might see the primary identity as being something on an urban scale. They might be a Mancunian or even from a particular area, a, a Chortonite. So I'm interested as well looking at that rescaling of identity. And to that end, I'm currently putting together a project. So watch this space around global Islamic economies, looking and comparing minority and majority spaces within that and the women who work within certain contexts and thinking about controls as well as flows between those different countries and spaces and also understanding mobilities too, thinking through ambitions of many of these women as artists to work internationally and not just to be bounded in place. So that's something that I'm working on now. And the final thing that I'm doing is I'm a parliamentary academic researcher that's working on EDI issues around the heritage collections there, which is bringing in many of the voices of the people I've worked with on this book.